Good morning, good morning. All right, guys go ahead and grab a seat and we'll get started here. Let's see, all right. Well, good to see you this morning. Um, if I haven't got to meet you, my name's Rich and I'm one of the pastors here at the Firehouse Church. And we are going through um, the Gospel of Mark uh, right now as a series and we are on chapter 2. We're 10 weeks into it and we're already at chapter 2, so it's very moving right along. No, just the third week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we will begin reading uh, Mark chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you might get that ready to roll here. But let's just pray and ask God to uh, make this time worth, worth our while. Well, Lord Jesus, we do just thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and, and get our hearts warmed um, by, by you and by one another. And God, we just thank you for the wonderful fellowship you've given this church family. And God, I do pray as we open up the scriptures here, you would open up our hearts. We ask you to help us to, to understand some of the things we're reading and especially understand what you might want each one of us to do. God, I do pray that you would um, use your spirit, use your word um, to mark our hearts and souls here this morning. God, change us, impact us, influence us, make us more like you. We just, uh, we just ask that you would bless us that way and make this time worth your while and our while. And God, we just ask you to bless the rest of the day as well. But we, um, we pray together, we look to you together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So. How many of you guys are excited to watch the big game today? I think it's... What's that? Go Broncos. Yeah. That's good. I, my, my thought is, how could it be called the big game if the Broncos are not playing in it, right? I mean, that's uh, it's, it's about as big a game as it could be without Tebow playing. So, um, But no, it should, be, it should be a good time, and we will hopefully have fun. And like Jeff said, if you're, if you're coming here, bring, bring your snacks, bring a board game or something like that, just in case it's, uh, it's a blowout or, you know, whatever. It should be a good time. Anyways, um, but it's fun to see. I noticed on, I don't know if you guys have noticed on TV, they, some of the people that do their commercials, they are aware of the same copyright situation. And instead of calling it, you know, get your beverages for the Super Bowl party there, they're saying, get your beverages for the big game, you know. We are not the only ones not authorized to use the Super Bowl as a, as a name there. So we're in the same boat as a bunch of people. But anyways, all right, Mark chapter 2 here. We're going to read a couple, you know, a passage at a time and then look at some, some things we can pull out of it, some things we might be able to learn. Um, but we're going to do this first passage here is uh, verse 1 to 12. So if you've got your Bible here, House Bible, page 991. So um, if you don't have a Bible, I'll read it so you can follow along with me here. But this, this section is called, uh, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. A few days later, when Jesus uh, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat, uh, lowered the, mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Just to, to start here, um, I love that phrase at the end there. You know, I thought, you know, this is not even a point or anything, but, but uh, I just love how it says, This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. One thing I thought here is, what, what if as a church, we, we go out of here today just praying this verse, Lord, would you be doing things in our midst that leave us amazed and praising God, um, things that we've never seen before? Would you guys join me in praying that as, as we go out of here? And just it, That's just kind of a, it's a footnote maybe, but I thought, wow, that could be an awesome firehouse prayer. God, would you do some things that would amaze everyone, cause us to praise God, things we've never seen before? I thought that would be awesome. But anyways, let's go to the first point here. That, that's, that's a free one right there. Um, so Jesus heals the paralytic here. Um, you know... Um, First, we're going to look at a few lessons on faith. Some lessons um, really about these people that brought the paralyzed man to Jesus. I think there's some awesome examples that they give us um, that, that we can learn from in our own faith. And um, Let's see here. Uh, I love this verse. Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, how awesome is that? That Jesus could take a look, say it a couple of us here, and he would look and say... You know, I see your faith. How do you see a person's faith, you know? Well, he saw their faith through what? For example, to follow, he saw their faith through their actions. He could see that they really believed he could help their friend. They really believed he could heal their friend. And he could tell. Why? Because he read their minds, because he looked into their hearts. No, he took a look at, at, at their actions. Um... You know, I've heard it said a number of times before, Mark Darling loves to say, I can tell what you believe by how you live. You say you believe in evangelism, but if you never do it, you know, it's kind of clear that you don't really think it's that important if you don't do it. Um, there, you can say, yeah, I'm trusting God for a spouse, but if you're kind of turning over every rock, you're pursuing every opportunity that comes along, you kind of don't believe God's going to provide, do you? You know, um, there's so many things we can say we believe, but uh, this is just awesome. When he said, I see your faith by what you're doing, by what you're not doing. I think it would be awesome for us to have our faith seen as clearly as these guys' faith was seen here. Another thing, um, their faith overcame huge obstacles. They believed they could get this person, this paralytic, their friend before Jesus, and their faith drove them to overcome some obstacles. You know, could you imagine if they're bringing their friend along here? I don't know what the mat looked like. Some say it was like a fabric thing that, you know, kind of, I don't know, maybe like a hammock sort of thing they're carrying or something, or, or just not a, a rigid, sometimes I think it would have been like a, one of those boards they use in an ambulance or a football game. They put them on the board and they carry them along, but 
It sounded like it was a, a mat. They were carrying them along. What if they got there and they go, wow, there's a huge crowd. People are standing outside. You know, buddy, we came, we saw. Let's just go home and grab a beer. You know, we, we, uh, we did what we could. The odds, you know, this line is never going to go away. This is never going to subside. We can never get you before Jesus. Let's head out. Is that what they did? No, they had a faith that they thought, if we can just some way, somehow, get this guy before Jesus, his life is going to be radically changed. Uh, and they, they believe that so much that it caused them to overcome. You know, sometimes we can look at something and go, well, I just don't see how it's possible. Logistically, it just, financially, it just doesn't work. I'm out of here. That's not the type of faith that they showed us in their example. It overcame huge obstacles. Um, it also, their faith caused some serious creativity, some ingenuity. You know, um, I... I, you know, I just can't even imagine what, I don't, I try to picture what did this house look like. You know, I know the roofs back then were different than our modern day roofs. I know a lot about roofs. Some of you know, um, I'm a thatcher of roofs running my family for many years, you know, so funny. I thought if I ever did another business besides church, I thought maybe I should get in the roofing business, you know, be, be the rich thatcher out there. But um, anyways, uh, okay. Uh, I do have a day job here besides humor. So, uh, but anyways, it caused them to be seriously creative. They thought, hey, look, we cannot get in through this crowd. We can't push our way. We can't, uh, we can't get before Jesus. But I don't know if they just started looking around going, you know, um, well, there's a... Wow, there's a second story there, and there's maybe there's a ladder, or there's a wall, or there's something in back. Let's, what if we climb around over there, climb on top of there? The roof, you know, is made out of, maybe there was some, some stones, or some uh, just, you know, maybe it was just like straw and dirt and stuff. They knew, hey, we can, we can pull through this, drop them right down in front of there. I don't know, but the point is, when you have faith, um, and you have a cause, you, you will overcome your obstacles. You, you will get creative. And I don't know, how creative have you been in bringing your friends to Jesus Christ, you know? How creative have you gotten? Or, or you kind of go, yeah, they're just, they're just hardened to the gospel. I'll find someone else next. Um, we need to be men and women who are getting creative to bring people before Jesus Christ, you know? And, uh, we bring people before Jesus nowadays in really, I think, two ways especially. One is you can bring someone before Christ through your prayers. And you come before God and we're praying and we're trying to draw His attention to them and bring them before Him through our prayers. We can also do it by bringing the gospel to them, bringing the message of Jesus Christ right to them. We need to figure out ways to creatively do that. The other thing that's pretty awesome here, I think, as well, um, you know, working together, their faith blessed. It impacted the life of another. Now, when you look at this article who, uh, or this passage, who, who had faith? Whose faith did Jesus, Jesus notice? How much faith did the paralytic have? Can you, how, how can, can you tell from this passage? How much faith did the paralytic have? We have absolutely no idea if the paralytic had any faith at all. His faith was not even mentioned. Whose faith was mentioned? His friend's. Think about that. This paralytic got healed, miraculously healed, his sins forgiven, and we don't even know what he believed. But we do know his friends believed that they brought him to Jesus. Jesus would turn his life around. Your faith can impact people who might not have faith yet. That's an awesome thought. You know, it's not just about, well, if they got around their hearts so hard, they're never going to believe there. You know, there's probably people saying that about you and I back in the days. This person, there's no, there's no hope. 
But, you know, the faith and the prayers of people can impact the lives of others. We have no idea what this guy's faith was about. Jesus didn't say to this guy, hey, paralyzed guy, your faith has healed you. He said, hey, you guys, I see your faith. Your friend is healed. That's awesome. The other thing we see here is that um, they were working together. They were working together. You know, um, imagine you trying to bring your friend to this house that's crowded, people everywhere. Um, and you started to figure out how to get creative and you're thinking, alright, if I can only get my friend on the roof. Imagine your friend's about the same size as you. He's on some sort of mat. Uh, you know, I don't know. What do you do? You get up there, you throw a rope up there, you tie a rope around him, and you start like trying to pull him up on the roof. Pretty much, unless you're like, you know, Alan or someone, it would be impossible to pull another guy up on the roof. Um, no matter how creative you got. But what did he do? He teamed up with four people, you know. He probably had a few that were like pushing him up, a few that were pulling, a few that's holding the person that's pulling so they don't fall off, become paralyzed. I mean, there's a, they were, they were working together and their faith blessed another. And you know what I think, um, we have an announcement, Wednesday night small groups. You know what your small group could and should be like? A bunch of people who are coming together that have faith that if you could just bring your friends before Jesus, their lives will be radically changed. I don't know what you expect from your small group, but I think that would be an awesome expectation. That we go in, and hopefully there's even more than four of you on your small group that would have faith. Jeff has a small group of like 25 adults, you know, and surely there's four people in there with faith that can help pull someone before Jesus. They are going to multiply. That's good. <laughs> that's awesome. There's going to be some faith required in that. And, uh, you know, they're only going to have 15 people in each group after that. But, no. but imagine if all nine of our small groups had people working together, compelled by compassion for their friends, the lost, bringing them before Jesus. What would happen to this church? It would be awesome. Let's seek God for something. Let's work together in faith that rocks some other people's lives here. Oh, can we do that? I think that would be awesome. Anyways, let's keep moving on here. That's some lessons on their faith. Um, another thing from this very same passage we can just see about Jesus. You know, it said when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Um, you know, to tell someone their sins are forgiven... I, I don't know. Um, first point I get out of that is Jesus dealt with this man's spiritual condition first. Jesus could have said, Hey, look, ah, you're paralyzed. That's got to be rough. I know you want to be walking, running, jumping, and, and get up and go. He said, No, he looked at this man and said, Let's deal with the biggest fish to fry first. Let's deal. You know, I can heal your body and you'll be good for the next 60, 70 years. Um, but you know, if, if I heal your soul, if you find forgiveness, you'll be good for eternity. What do you think is a bigger deal? Sometimes we think it's a bigger deal. Boy, if I could do a supernatural miracle here and now in temporary time and space, that would be the most awesome thing that God could ever use, you know? But wouldn't it be a greater deal if someone gets right with God, spends eternity in His presence, in heaven, in, in all that would be there, jumping, running, flying in heaven, you know? Um, much bigger deal than a couple of years here on earth. But do you see, see that as a bigger deal? Sometimes I know myself, I go, man, that's supernatural stuff. That's where it's at. At the firehouse, if we were working these miracles, you know, everyone would want to come here. Small groups would be overflowing. If you did, you know, small group leaders doing a few miracles here and there would be awesome. But, um, but Jesus dealt with the spiritual condition of this man first. That's a great example to us all. The other thing is obviously... Uh, 
the implications of a statement. I don't know how to say this well, but the, the idea that for someone to say, hey, look, uh, I know you've got sins before God. You've sinned against your Creator, and I just want to let you know I forgive you. You know, Ben, your sins are forgiven forever. Catch you later. You know, um, there were some serious implications of Jesus saying, hey, look, son, your sins are forgiven. You are now right with God, a holy, a righteous, eternal God. You're now right with Him because I said so. That's kind of a big deal. That's kind of controversial. And, and these guys knew it. The Pharisees were like, what's this fellow talking about, man? He's forgiving sins. Um, they knew it was a big deal. Now, they made the wrong call on it. It's a big deal for one of two reasons. Either he was blaspheming. He's going, I'm, I'm forgiving sins. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And he was just a, a, a fruitcake. You know, he's just going, he didn't know what he was saying. And he had no business saying that because he couldn't do anything about it. Or the other deal was, he really was someone who could forgive the sins of man before God. He was one of the other. They made the call that he was, he was blaspheming. He was off his rocker. They made the wrong call. But we need to know, you know, he's got, there's serious implications about his claims here. Um, the other thing here is that he, he proved his authority to forgive sins by his miracle. Now, sometimes it can be a little confusing. Here you read this and Jesus says, what's easier to say, you know, um, your sins are forgiven or, or get up and walk? I don't know, which one of those is easier to say? I mean, you could measure it, maybe which one's a longer sentence to say. It's easier to say the ones with less words. But the idea is you and I could say, hey, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. I mean, we could say those both just as easily, right? And yet on the other side of the coin, the point is, uh, how easy is it for you to forgive someone's sins before God or cause a paralyzed person? How easy is that for you to do that? Both are equally impossible for us to do. Well, they're equally easy to say. His point was that, hey, look, you know, and I love this. It says it like this in the in the Living Bible here. Um, sometimes these paraphrased Bibles come in handy. It says it like this in the Living Bible. I, the Messiah, have authority on earth to forgive sins. But talk is cheap. Anybody could say that. So I'll prove it to you by healing this man. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But when you cause someone who's paralyzed to get up, jump up and walk, you know, it, it might kind of back the other idea here that, yeah, maybe you actually could forgive sins. Maybe you really are that Messiah who was to come. And so Jesus just proved. It wasn't just that he was making claims. He proved his claims by the miracles he performed. We're only in chapter 2 of his miracles in Mark. Obviously, no, we know one of the greatest miracles ever recorded, the greatest miracle ever recorded, was him dying and rising again from the grave. And, and that's the credentials we have you know, in following Jesus Christ. Sometimes people say, they ask the question, you probably heard this all the time, oh, Christianity is so exclusive, it's so limited, Jesus is the only way to heaven. What about Buddha? Haven't you ever heard of Buddha? What about, you know, they have all these things, but you know, here's the deal, when it comes to, to dealing with sin, sin is what separates us from God, sin is what requires God's eternal punishment for breaking His eternal laws. So you've got to get to the question that in order to get to heaven, you've got to deal with your sin. Who else has the ability to forgive sin? They said it. When you share this with Muslims on campus, they say the same things the, the Jews said, the Pharisees. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Buddha can't forgive sins. You know, his deal was, hey, look, if you learn to snuff out your desires, it doesn't really matter because you don't even care anymore. Uh, not much less you're forgiven or you have life. Um, others, you know, Muhammad never claimed he could forgive anyone's sins. Nietzsche, you know, tried to do away with the concept of sin. But Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins and he backed it by doing things no one had ever seen before. 
He gave proof that He could. And that is why He's the only way to heaven. Not because, oh, Christians are just trying to be narrow-minded and they've got the best belief and yours isn't better than theirs. It's because no one else on this planet ever showed that they could overcome sin and death and provide forgiveness. Besides Jesus Christ, He's the only one. love this verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And, and this is what your Bible teaches. I hope you know this. It's controversial. It really is. Uh, but it's true. Salvation can be found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name you'll find on this planet uh, from the beginning of time to the end that has the ability to deal with your sin before a righteous, a holy, eternal God. No other name than Jesus Christ. That's why He's the only way to heaven. He's the only one that can deal with our sin issue. So be sure of that. Be confident of that. These are some serious claims, but he proved it like no one else ever did. So I think we're moving on here. Let's go. Um, he is the one way to get forgiveness from God. Okay, let's look at this next section here. We're going to look at um, this next passage here. Jesus calls another disciple. You see um, the calling of Levi. You might know Levi, uh, a.k.a. Matthew. Another name. Sometimes they had, you know, one name. There's Simon, which was also Peter. Levi was also Matthew. Um, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many, uh, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" On hearing this, Jesus said to them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we're going to uh, look at a few things here. Um, really, we're going to look at two, uh, two things here. One is, we're going to look at some things about Levi, some things we can learn about Jesus calling Matthew. Then we're going to look at some, the Pharisees and some things we can learn not to do from the Pharisees here. But let's see him. Follow me. He told him. Levi got up and followed him. One of the first things I, I want to make the point here is um, you don't have to be perfect to start following Jesus. But you do have to start. You don't have to be perfect to start following Jesus. But somewhere along the way, you've got to start. Sometimes we have this idea, when I get my act together, when I get out of this sin, when I stop having trouble with alcohol, when I stop having trouble with women, when I stop lying, whatever it is, then I'll be a good candidate to follow Jesus. But if you take a look at, at Matthew here, he was, uh, he was a tax collector. Tax collector that meant a couple things here. One was that... Um, Generally, a tax collector was not an honest person. We see that in other places, you know, things like Zacchaeus and some of them. They, they basically extracted taxes for the Romans on, on the Jewish natives there. And so he basically was like working with the, the Roman IRS, I don't know, working with them to, um, to, to tax the people they ruled over there, the Jews. And so that was um, one, it tended to be a dishonest thing, you know, like your tax bracket is, uh, you know, whatever I say it is. Um, so 
It was not like the 999 plan here like Herman Cain had. It wasn't that simple. They, they kind of did what they wanted to do and they had the Roman authorities backing them. Some dishonesty there. Another thing is that it was, he was, what do you think, how do you think people, his, his peers, his fellow Jews looked on that job that he had? You think they liked someone like that? No, he was probably despised by his Jewish brothers because he's working for the Romans to tax his own people. What a betrayer. What a, I'm sure he was despised and looked down on. Another thing that he probably was is that I bet he was probably somewhat comfortable though. Probably made some good money. He had like a, you know, an office with an ocean view there. You know, he had his tax booth sitting out looking over Galilee. That was probably some, I don't know, probably a good place to have a business set up. And I, and I bet he was fairly comfortable. Aside from the being despised, he probably had to figure out how to deal with the both of those. But financially speaking, he was probably pretty comfortable. But Jesus, he calls this guy and he says, hey you, let's go. And, and he did. Do you think he, you know, repented on the spot, had a change of, oh, I'm going to have to pay people back, all that. No, Zacchaeus did. That's his story. But Matthew just says, he just got up and he just started following Jesus. And as he started to follow Jesus, I think you see the followers of Jesus, they all started off as a bunch of goobers. You know, they're just doing dumb things. They're always doubting, always being like, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. You know, they just had all these things. But as they started following Jesus, they became men of uh, great faith, men who died in, in following Jesus, men who were martyrs, all of them martyred, you know. And, um, but it started, they started off just going, okay, I'm ready, let's go. You know, maybe uh, maybe Matthew was tired. Maybe he was just like, you know, same old thing. I'm cheating the same old people. I'm eating the same old food. I'm, you know, uh, comfortable, but I, I'm ready for something else. Are you ready for something else? Are you ready to leave maybe some dishonest practices behind? Are you ready to maybe stop being despised for unrighteousness and start being despised because you follow Jesus? He said, hey, look, they hated me. They're going to hate you. But let's get hated for the right reasons, you know. Um, are you ready to leave maybe something comfortable behind you? But anyways, he met them where they were at. Uh, you don't have to be perfect to get started. The other thing, though, is um, he will meet you where you're at, but he's going to take you where you want to go. We have to watch out. Sometimes I think people fall into this trap. It's like, you just got to accept me for me. I'm such a unique person. I'm such a, that's my personality. I just kind of, I just tend to lie. I just try, tend to try to get the attention. I, that's just me. Accept me. I, I love Jesus. We're all going to heaven. Now, you know, let me be. Jesus met sinners where they were at and he took them some radical places they never ever thought they could go. But he didn't just say, you know, he could have been like, hey, Levi, how you doing? Um, yeah, good, yeah. Why don't you, you know, read some scrolls? I'll get back to you next week. Keep, keep the dishonest thing going. That's cool. I accept you. Uh, you know, keep being despised. You know, that deal with that. That's what happens when you cheat people. Um, and, uh, Keep the comfort going, man. That's awesome, you know. Have a stake on me. Um, but Jesus didn't say that. I'll see you next week. He said, let's go. I'm calling you out of this. I'll meet you right where you're at. I know Jesus knew everything about this guy's life. And he said, let's go. And he took him to some radical places that he would have never, ever gone before, including heaven, you know, headed to heaven, being righteous. Not despised for unrighteousness, but he'll meet you where you're at. But just don't, don't confuse that with, oh, well, you've got to accept me. I'm a Christian. I can do whatever I want now. That's a bunch of baloney. I use that B word. Um, there's other 
It's a bunch of balagna. But um, anyways, he'll meet you where you're at. He'll accept it. And then he's going to take you on a radical ride that will change your life. You just need to decide if you want to get started on that. Um, the other thing here is that Jesus wants to impact your world of friends. I think it's, it's crazy here. I don't exactly know how this goes, but it's like, hey, Levi, follow me. And he follows him. And by the way, Levi, we're having a party at your house tonight. You know, um, he did that with Zacchaeus too. It sounds like the same deal. It's kind of like you start following Jesus, and the next thing you know, he's coming over to your house. He's bringing all his friends. Um, but, but Jesus wants to impact and influence your whole network of people. And now there, I think there's two extremes we've got to watch out for on that. One extreme is, you know, there's the Pharisees going, oh, he's eating with all those sinners. I'm holier than that and I don't go near sinners. Uh, and we don't, want to, we don't want our small groups at the firehouse to be holy huddles. Uh, we do want them to be holy, but we, we also want them to be, you know, hanging out with those that aren't yet following Jesus, you know. But sometimes we can get on the other side of the deal and go, well, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink like a sinner. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to do all the same things. And, uh, but, you know, I'm trying to reach them. Now, no one's ever come to Christ because of my impact, but I, I'm, gonna, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, at least I'm not pointing and calling them sinners. I'm just living like a worldly Christian, a carnal Christian, living just like a sinner. Sometimes we go, oh, I'm Christian, but there's nothing different about my world except that I go to church on Sunday and small group on Wednesday, you know? Um, we need to be careful. There's a tension there. And you can, tell, you can tell how you're doing by, if you go into this world... You know, the question you can ask, are you being influenced or are you influencing them? Um, You know, just look at the fruit. Jesus said a good tree bears good fruit. You think it's great to hang out with sinners? Are you helping influence them for Christ? Or are they influencing you? And you're drinking more than you should. And you're, uh, maybe you're passing the peace pipe a little more than you should. Whatever it is, but are you being influenced? Or are you being an influence for Jesus Christ? The other thing we have to think about is that Jesus didn't send Levi in there alone. He didn't say, Levi, here's the deal. Throw a big party, get all your old lost friends, hang out with them, and good luck to you. No, Jesus said, we're having a party, I'm coming. All the other 11 disciples, I don't know how many they had by that time, all the disciples are coming, and we're going we're gonna to influence, we're going to have a party that's going to probably freak your friends out here a little bit, you know? Um, but we have to decide, you know, he didn't send them to do it alone. Sometimes we think, I'm going to go, I'm a lone ranger Christian, I'm doing my thing, and I drank too much again. Oops. But I'm Christian, I'm forgiven, you've got to accept me. Well, you know, somewhere along the way, you've got to be different than the people you're trying to reach, you know. You've got to be able to, uh, you can't be drowning if you're trying to rescue the person next to you. You can't be drowning in your sin, drowning in your booze, whatever it is, you know. Um, you need to be at a place where you can help reach someone else. And it's not the Lone Ranger thing. If you're doing a Lone Ranger thing, my guess is you probably not helped anyone else out or get farther than you're doing on your own, which often isn't that far. We need each other. And we need to work together to reach those others. We don't want to have holy huddles. Uh, and we don't want to have worldly, you know, Corinthian small groups going on either. Um, we want to have a balance of both here. So... Check yourself. Are you being a thermometer? Are you being a thermostat? You know, a thermometer, you take the temperature that's going on around you, that's what you become. A thermostat, you set it, you change the environment around you. What sort of fruit are you getting? And then make, make adjustments accordingly there. He wants to impact your friends for eternity. He doesn't want you being impacted. Um, three errors we've got to watch out for from the Pharisees here. Three errors. I was trying to say, 
It's a little better to say like three heirs to be wares or something like that, but that's not that's not good English. Um, I did better at math and science. So, um, but beware of three heirs of the Pharisees. We're going to look at a few things they were doing right here. One of the things, pretty obvious, beware of being judgmental. They were talking to Jesus' disciples, going, "He's hanging out with the sinners." Does he know he's hanging out with you? You know he's hanging out with all. I can't believe the guy you're following here is with the sinners. But the Pharisees just had a habit of judging everyone. They found fault in everyone around them, and they rarely found fault with themselves. Now most of us go, oh, Pharisees are yucky. I don't want to be like that. But be careful, because you know if the shoe fits, you might be wearing, you know, a Pharisee sandal there or something. But beware. Do you tend towards judgmentalism, towards being critical, towards finding faults in others? Does that come easily? Because it sure did to them. And, and if you're a judgmental person, Jesus said, hey, look, don't judge unless you want to be judged. Or the same way that you judge, the same measure you're using on people, that's how you're going to be treated. If you get real judgmental and critical of people, watch out because you're setting yourself up for God to bring some things into your world there. But they were very judgmental. They looked down on everybody. They even found fault in Jesus. You know, that's hard to do, right? But, you know, maybe you're one of those, I can find fault even in Jesus. Um, watch out for that. Beware the air of being judgmental. Another thing these guys were, you got to beware of being a gossip. Beware of being a cowardly gossip. What were these guys doing? They had issues with Jesus. They had an offense with Jesus. And who did they talk to? They talked to his brand new fledgling disciples. Jesus is doing that. Can you believe that? You know what they were trying to do, likely? They were trying to stumble these guys. They're following Jesus. They're not following their Jewish things. And, and they wanted to trip them up a little bit. Do you know what that guy's doing? Boy, he's, he's hanging with these sinners. You should know better than that. You know these scriptures. And, but, but they were just taking their issues to the wrong people. And, and do you do that? You take a, get an offense, you had a problem, and you go to someone else. You don't go to the person you should go to. You don't go to the source. You go to someone else. Pharisees did that all the time. It steamrolled into eventually they're coming up with a plan on how to kill Jesus, you know. But it just started with talking, whispering behind the back of Jesus. Um, and we've got to be really, really sharp about that. Because it's really easy to do, you know. Um, a couple verses to think about here. Um, Jesus, uh, see here. At one point, Jesus is teaching them. Here's how you deal with issues. Here's how you deal with faults or sin. Um, this is Matthew, um, Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens, you have won him over. And then he continues with things from there. Well, what happens to us sometimes? We got issues. We got a problem. We go talk to our roommates. We go talk to anyone. We want to find an outlet. I just want to get this off my chest, you know. And um, do you have people you go to who are not part of the problem, not part of the solution? I heard a saying a number of years ago. I remember John Meyer sharing this in a maturity class, you know. And he said, uh, "Here's a little saying, a little jingle you can use, but." You know, if you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the solution, you should not be a part of the conversation. You're talking about something you weren't involved in. Maybe you're hearing it like second, third, you know, third uh, level of indirection there. You probably shouldn't be a part of the conversation. I'm a pastor. And you know what? Sometimes I tell people, whoa, 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 whoa. You need to go talk to that person. Now, a pastor should be involved in every problem, right? 
Right? I mean, I should have a free pass. I'm a pastor. No, there's times where I wasn't a part of that situation. I have no idea what happened. But if you're offended, you need to go talk to them. Don't go whispering to someone else. Sometimes we're just looking for an outlet. I get this off. I tell my roommates. tell my small group leader. Now you've got to go and talk to the right person. Now, now sometimes you go, well, should I talk to someone about it or not? You can get advice, get counsel. But if that advice... Is this an ongoing outlet? There's some people that go, I just talk to this person every time and they know my last 100 complaints about this person. I've never talked to them. They don't even know I have a problem. You're you're gossiping. You're being cowardly, just like the Pharisees. You need to take your issues straight to the person you have them with. And sometimes, you know, we can fall into the trap of, hey, I'm just a good listener. I just know how to listen to people. Talk to me. Let me hear. Let me hear what's on your heart. Sometimes we like information, social information. You know, I like to be in the know. Did you hear? Well, you know what that's called? It's called being a gossip. And it doesn't help anything, and it causes a lot of problems. As a matter of fact, you've got to make sure you're a good listener. A good listener doesn't listen to evil. This proverb here, 17.4, says, Wrongdoers eagerly listen to gossip. Liars pay close attention to slander. What are you listening to? You might say, I'm not talking about anybody. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to someone who's got issues with someone else? You need to shut that conversation down and send them to talk to the right person. We have got to beware of gossip. It's so easy to do. The, the Proverbs say it's like a tasty morsel. It's like eating a filet mignon, man. Really tasty. Who doesn't want that? Our flesh is just like, yeah, let's bring the filet mignon on. Get the A1 sauce and let's get talking. Um, no, you need to make sure you're pointing people to the right, the right person they need to talk to here. Um, probably doesn't apply to any of us, I know, but I thought I got put it on the heart here. Um, last one here is the third error that we see of these Pharisees. Beware of being self-righteous. They, uh, you know, they, you know, maybe you feel like you're in a good place to identify who's the sinners and who's not, or what sins you think are really bad and what sins you don't. Um, the Pharisees really did that, um, and and I love this translation of that verse. And they said, "Hey, look, I came to help out those that are sick, not those that are healthy." At first glance, that makes sense. Okay, sick people need a doctor, healthy people don't. But what he was really, I think what he was really implying, the New Living puts verse 17 like this. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. He wasn't just saying, hey, you guys are healthy, you're the Pharisees, you got the law figured out. He was saying, I haven't come to help those that are self-righteous. I've come to help those who know they've sinned against a righteous and holy God and they want to do something about it. And you need to make sure, you know, um, I, I know myself, I think one of the straws that broke my, this camel's back, I remember hearing a gospel message that had to do with, um, it was talking about the story of Noah and how his faith, God credited him, credited him with righteousness. And, and John Meyer was just sharing about how there's two ways you know you can be righteous. One is because God says you're righteous. I count this one as righteous. I impute righteousness to you. The other way is any other way you want to define it. Basically self-righteousness. I'm good enough. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not. When you come before God, you will stand before Him in one of two ways. There's a self-righteousness, or there will be a righteousness that comes from God. You know, Romans says that, that is the gospel. A righteousness has been revealed. A righteousness from God has been revealed to man through faith. Um, which do you have? 
You want to make sure you're not coming before God and He asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? And you got an answer that ties back into self-righteousness. Or I wasn't like that person. Or I was good enough. Or I was... You know, these guys knew they were sinners and they knew they needed a Savior. For me in my own world, I think... Uh, I was trying to wrestle. Do I have enough faith to be saved or not? And I kind of go back and forth and I probably prayed the sinner's prayer a bunch of times. But eventually what I started realizing was I started getting a sense more and more I am a sinner. And the more I understand God's righteous standard, the more I realize I'm a sinner. I'm not going from, boy, I really wish I could believe. I went to a place of if this is not true, if I cannot find forgiveness through Jesus Christ, I don't know what I'm going to do because I will appear before God unrighteous, and I knew the wages of sin is death. Eternal death was my sentence. But I got to the point where not only did I, did I believe it was true, I believe that it was the only way I could get my sin dealt with. And it was such an awesome thing. But, you know, if you haven't come to Jesus as a sinner, you probably haven't come to Jesus yet. I encourage you to think about that and beware of coming before God being found self-righteous. You know, I used to think, well, I got my definition, but when I came before God, I was thought about them. Jesus had, you know, uh, Revelation says, your name is going to be found written in the Lamb's book of life, or not. Now, who's the one writing down names in the Lamb's book of life? You, you and I, you know, through faith we kind of etch our names in. and No, Jesus has written your name in it, or he hasn't. He's the one who decides whether you're in that book or not. If you think, you know, oh, I've been good enough, I had enough faith, I prayed back when I was da-da-da-da. I don't know, I got to the point where I go, if Jesus hasn't written my name in there, as good as I can talk other people into, yeah, I should be in heaven, he's not going to buy it. Men and women just need to make sure you've brought into the righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ. Um, so beware of these errors. Beware of being judgmental. Beware of being a gossip. And beware of self-righteousness. Let's see, last thing we're going to close on here. Let's just read this section here. I'm going to read um, to the end, but we're only going to hit two things uh, between here and the end. Um, Let's see, Jesus' question about fasting, and we're going to also just read Lord of the Sabbath. uh, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus. I love that. They had a question, who did they go ask? Jesus, this was not the Pharisees. It said John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but not yours? Um, But yours are not. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them, uh, so long as they have him with them. Um, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Let's stop right there. Maybe we'll do the the next part next week there. um, So Jesus has asked about fasting here. and he responds by saying, he responds with two analogies. One is about a patch on a piece of clothing. One is about wine and a wineskin. Now, how many of you got a patch? Anyone still on a patch recently on your things? Got a patch? All right, there you go. On your uh, pants or something like that? Oh, right now? Yeah. No, but I sew a lot. You sew, okay, well, there you go. You've dealt with patches. That's good. Well, not too many people in this room right now probably have patches. Anyone got patches on their clothing currently? 
Yes, you do. All right. Well, they were very popular. What back in the '80s? Patches were on everything. I have a picture. Uh, I almost was going to scan it and put it in here, but it's a picture of my wife, and she's hanging with Grace and Joy and Mandy, and they're all hanging, climbing on some of those little kids, and all of them have some serious patches on their clothes. They look very cute, but it's very '80s probably as well. I don't know, but the kids probably more common than for adults. You know what? What do we do nowadays? You, you actually buy clothes that they've torn them for you. Um, you know. We're not looking for patches. I think eventually patches will probably cycle again. My wife says never, but um, patches will probably come in again and, you know, we'll be wearing them. But the only patch, when I think of patches modern day, I think of what, what type of patches are, uh, other patches are out there? Software patches, baby. Software, that's right. Um, so when I think of patches, I go, you know, it's kind of be like uh, if you take the uh, latest, greatest software patch. I don't, I don't even know. I'm not up to date. You know, it's like service pack number 21 or something like that for Windows 7.0. But imagine you get this latest, greatest package, uh, patch, software patch. It's like 20 megabyte patch you're going to put on. And you take your old Commodore 64 computer. Anyone still have a Commodore 64? I used to have one. Commodore 64, I think it meant it had like 64 bytes of capacity on it or something. I don't know. Uh, I had some friends that we used to go visit and play on their computer, Texas Instruments. It was one of those that had like the tape cassettes, you like push play to somehow load the software. I don't know. Um, but, but imagine taking this 20 megabyte patch and you're going to go put it on a Commodore 64. Any computer guys tell me what's going to happen? Nick, not much, not much, right? It's not going to work. It's going to be incompatible. And Jesus was saying, hey, look, these guys were talking about fasting. You know, fasting in the Old Testament was a form of mourning. It was for times of sorrow. You might remember David was fasting um, for his child that, um, that died at eight days old. And, and they said, why are you fasting? You're supposed to fast after he dies, not before he dies. It was, it was a form of mourning and sorrow. And Jesus, he took their, hey, aren't your disciples supposed to be fasting? And he contrasted fasting, the sorrowful funeral type fasting with what? He said, hey, look, we're having a wedding around here, and how can we be fasting if there's a wedding going on? That's how you relate to something that's died. We're talking about new life here, a relationship, a wedding. And, and that's, you know, that's what he was getting at here. He was basically telling them that um, Old Testament law, Old Testament living, it was incompatible with this New Testament life that Jesus had for them. It was incompatible. It was not about mourning because the wages of sin is death and all you've got to do is sin once. You've got eternal punishment. No, it's about this New Testament life. All you've got to do is come to believe. One time, come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it secures your wedding, your intimate relationship forever. And, and, you know, it wasn't like sometimes people think, you know, Christianity was just this, it's just this patch to help out Old Testament Judaism. You just kind of do everything you do. Don't eat your pork. Make sure you Sabbath is Saturday. Make sure you do all these. And by the way, add Jesus to the mix. He's the little kind of patch you put on this. No, God was saying that old system was broken. That old system, all you did, did is, you know, you had to obey everything. And if you didn't obey one thing, you die. Funeral time. Jesus is saying all you got to do is believe, have this relationship. It's the, the New Testament, the New Covenant is just believing in your Savior secures relationship with Him forever. And, and we just have to make sure those are, those are incompatible. Sometimes we bump into people that are like, you know, they want to take the whole Jewish way of life and you tack on Jesus. 
And you try to figure out how, you know, all the Jewish things that you're doing relate to Jesus. Jesus didn't teach his disciples that. He said, hey, look, this is a whole other world here. It's a, a world of joy. He used wine. Wine was also symbolic of, of joy, of gladness here, but it's as different as a funeral is from a wedding. Now, as a, as a Christian, you know, what does your countenance seem more like? You kind of walk around like you're headed to a funeral all the time? Or you kind of have that New Testament, I'm, I'm headed to a wedding here. My next destination is the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Hell is like maybe the eternal funeral where there's mourning and weeping and wailing forever. Which are you headed to and are you living accordingly here? Um, the other thing we have to realize, you know, another part of that is that it's about a new creation. You become a new creation when you believe in Jesus Christ. And that's incompatible with an old life of sin. You know, it's like the wine is on the inside and the wine skin is on the outside and it's saying, hey look, you put those two together, you put your, your new wine into an old wine skin and things bust. They explode, they make a mess. The same is true. When you become a Christian, one of my favorite verses uh, as a young believer was 2 Corinthians 5.17. Some of you know it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. When you become a, a Christian, you become a new person, a new being, a new creation. The question becomes, do you, do you go back to your old wineskin, your old way of life and try to go, I'm a new person, I'm forgiven, I just don't move, I'm perfect. You know, or or uh, do you go, do you live a new life? You know, another great verse is um, Acts. 520, it just says at one point Peter was told, go and stand in the temple courts and tell the people the full message of this new life. God has made you into a new creation and He wants you to live a new life. Your new life, forgiven, your, your new being, the new you, you are pure, you're holy, you're blameless. It's incompatible with that old way of life. It does not work, it will not work. That's not how it's supposed to be. But are you a new creation? Are you living the old life? We're all tempted to. Scripture is real clear. You're going to be tempted to go back to that. But it will be incompatible. It's not how it's designed to work. And I know in my own life, I, I became a Christian and you know there were no bells and whistles that went off. But there were a few things that happened. I remember with uh, my roommates, and I, I shared with you maybe last week or so, that I was trying to maybe reconcile things with my girlfriend. And I remember one time up in Fort Collins, going back to one of my old stomping grounds. Kind of in the old skin I had, went down to, it was called Washington's. Anyone know Washington's in Fort Collins? Probably still there. It was there since the early 1800s, I think. Um, it's an old uh, Fort Washington, I don't know what it was. But Wash Bar is this place, and lots of music, lots of drinking, lots of smoke. Back in the days, you could still smoke there. Um, but I remember going there with my friends. And they were dancing and drinking, and, and I was this new baby Christian. And I just had this sense inside me. This is not my life anymore. God just gave me a sickness in my stomach, a distaste for that old life. You're a new creation and you need to live a new life. And you know, if you're living inconsistently, it's not going to work. It's not compatible. And God wants to give you that new life. And it's a life about joy. A life that's headed to a funeral. Uh, not, a, not a funeral. It's a wedding. Um, sorry, there's a couple of verses there. You know, Jesus used that analogy several times about a wedding. Um, one point in Matthew 22, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. 
He went on to talk about those who are going to be in heaven and use this analogy of a wedding. Revelation 19, it closes up the entire you know, book of the Bible, the bookend of history, of time and space with, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're headed to an awesome wedding. Uh, your life should be full of joy. Uh, a new person. You are a new person. I love that. Sometimes it's like, when I became a Christian, I was a new person. And now, I got a little bit rusty. I got a little bit tarnished. And but boy, when I was a new Christian. But it, I love what it says there. If you're in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know what? You is a new person. You is a new person. Bad grammar, I know, but it's great doctrine. You is a new person right now, if you are in Christ. And you've got to make sure you're living that new life. The, life that, the only life that's compatible with being born again in Christ. And so, um, but anyways, my, my hope is that you're headed to the wedding. You know, how do you get to a wedding? I think about Dave and Erica, and they were headed to a wedding. How many of you thought they were pretty bummed out that they were going to be getting married? They were just kind of pretty like, oh, this is, well, whatever, I guess we're going to get married. Anyone think they were excited to get married? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Dave was excited, Erica was excited, but you're headed to a wedding, there's a joy, there's an excitement, but, but how, does, how do you get on that track, you know? How did they get on that track to marriage? The same way we get on that track to the wedding, uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Just as Dave, in his love, he proposed to Erica, and she said yes, and that culminated in a wedding. The same is true for this wedding in heaven, this heavenly wedding that is to come. Jesus made the proposal. He didn't take a knee. He didn't use diamonds. He took a cross. And it wasn't over by Sloan's Lake. It was overlooking Jerusalem. And he took a cross. And he, and he offered himself. And he showed his love there. And the response is up to you. You're invited to be a part of the wedding feast of the Lamb. He is the groom and the church is the bride. And unless you say, I do to Jesus Christ, you won't be a part of that eternal wedding celebration. You'll be a part of that eternal funeral. My hope and our hope here as a church is that every one of you would say, I do to Jesus Christ. I do believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. In order to look to Him as a Savior, you've got to be honest and admit you're a sinner. Only sinners need saviors, you know. But, but I just want to encourage you, if you're new with us, if you're checking things out, talk to someone who invited you. Talk to someone who you've met. Talk to someone on a small group. Any one of us would love to share more with you on how you can know for sure you're going to be with God forever in heaven with uh, inexpressible joy. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for, Jesus, that you did take the cross for us, that you... You create people new. That anyone who is in you and faith in you is a new creation right now as we sit. Lord Jesus, help us to follow you. Help us to live the new life. Even while being tempted by the old life and by this world and by the devil. Help us to follow you and see our lives radically changed. And help us, Lord Jesus, as we follow you to influence our friends and our loved ones. Help our faith to rock those all around us that don't know you yet. God, I just pray you would use each one of us. I pray you would use our small groups in this church to glorify your name greatly. Just pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for, for coming this morning, and we will see you at the big game party here this afternoon. Or we'll see you next week. All right.